0: Miss Sustanomics Miss Sustanomics is a weekly podcast that focuses on the three E's educating, encouraging, and empowering listeners on how to live their best authentic life I'm your host Ashley Natrice and let's start the show What's up, beautiful people? It's your girl, it's your host, Ashley Natrice, and I hope you guys have had an amazing week so far. I am so excited today because I am bringing on one of my friends, Natalie, to have a discussion about the criminal justice system in the United States, um, how we as black and brown people are disproportionately incarcerated, uh, profiling, just the criminal justice system as a whole. And it's very important for me to bring this type of conversation to you guys, considering that we are in the voting season. And so if you do not get anything else from our conversation today, I want you to know that it is your right and it is your duty Um, considering the things that our ancestors have gone through in order for us to have the ability to vote. It is your right and it is your responsibility, again, for you to get out and make sure that your voice is heard by going to the polls, by voting on the local level, on the national level. It is just so important that we do that because we understand what strikes we have against us already. We understand that the criminal justice system was not created in our favor. And the only way that we can bring about change is for us to get out and do the things that we can do on our own. And that is to let our voice be heard and to vote. So today I am bringing you guys a conversation with Natalie. And Natalie is an innovative professional focusing on criminal justice, criminal law, policy and social welfare who brings a dynamic position to the table she is experienced in research program management and development as well as academic instruction and legal advocacy she is a progressive scholar in criminal justice and holds a bs in sociology from the university of tennessee in knoxville an MA in criminal justice from John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. And she is months away from earning a Juris Doctorate of Law and Diploma of Comparative Law and Civil Law from Louisiana State University. Before her legal studies, Natalie completed training in community organizing, focusing on anti-racist thinking and thinking and ideologies and still works at the grassroots level with community organizing and policy change. Natalie works with Juvenile Justice Initiatives in Tennessee, New Jersey, New York, and Louisiana with hopes of having an impact on policy affecting young offenders. Recently, she has taken an affirmative interest in understanding the complexities that lead to juvenile detention. So I think you guys will find the conversation that I'm having with Natalie. Very interesting. I learned a lot. Um, She gave some great insights and I hope it's a discussion that we can continue to have. If you guys have any additional questions, all of Natalie's information will be in the show notes as usual. Feel free to reach out to her directly. Feel free to reach out to me in the DM. Feel free to send me an email if there's any other social um conversations that you guys want to have. If there's anything that we talk about today that you want to dive deeper on or get more information on, I think a lot of what we deal with sometimes is just a lack of knowledge. And although Natalie and I had a very high level overview conversation, I know there's room for us to dive deeper and to um, go a little bit more in depth in some of these issues that face our community. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation that I have with Natalie. Make sure you're tagging me on social media if you listen to an episode or something stands out to you. Shout out to everyone who's already been doing that. I love to repost the things that you guys are saying based on the podcast episodes on my Instagram stories. So make sure that you tag me, let me know your thoughts and I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Natalie. Hey, Natalie, thank you for being on the Mrs. podcast. Hey, Ashley, thanks for having me. So tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, so I'm Natalie. Um, I'm originally from Jersey, from Newark, um, but I grew up in Lewisburg, Tennessee. Um, Elberg, for those of you who are from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I left Lewisburg after I graduated high school and. Went to Knoxville, where I went to UT. Um, I studied criminal justice and Africana studies while I was there. After graduation, I moved to Dallas for a little while, worked in corporate America, hated it, made a lot of money, but I still hated it. So I decided to go back to the East Coast, and um, I attended John Jay, where I got my master's in criminal justice, and now... Um, I'm in Louisiana, where I'm currently finishing my last year of law school, thank
0: God. May 24th, can I get here any quicker? Um, I know. But yeah, that's about me. (laughs) So how did you get to um, criminal justice? Like, what drew you to that?
1: So I've been in love with criminal justice for a really long time. I think I fell in love with criminal justice probably... When I was probably younger than 10 years old, I was watching New York Undercover uh, at my godmother's oh, that house. Used to be the
0: sh- that used to be the show back in the day. I love that show.
1: I think I was halfway in love with Malik and halfway yeah. in love
0: with Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and- <laughs> I can see that.
1: So, um, it just ever since then, just watching it and like learning how people get arrested and learning like what the court system looked like, even though it was all TV. Um, It really Mm. caught my interest then, and I've just been in love with it ever since. And as I grew up and I saw different things, um, like when I was growing up in Tennessee, every summer I would go back to New Jersey. And in New Jersey, probably, I was from Newark, and everybody knows Newark is like the hood. And so you would always see police on every street corner, talking to people, arresting people, going after people, and just something about it just was really, really interesting to me. I originally wanted to go into forensics. And then when I saw the science requirement, I was like, "Mm, no, I don't think so. (laughs) So um, I've never steered away from it. I've always been criminal justice this, criminal justice that. However, I can rope in any class or project or assignment to have a criminal justice component. I would always do that.
0: So when you were working in New Jersey, um, tell me a little bit more about what type of criminal justice work you were doing. Because I think sometimes we only think about lawyers or police officers. And I know there's a ton of other areas in criminal justice. So can you go into a little bit more about what you were doing when you were in New Jersey? Sure. So once I... Almost, I was almost done with my master's program and I had
1: started volunteering with an organization that is called CASA and CASA stands for um, Court Appointed Special Advocate. And basically okay. what CASA does is they train community volunteers to advocate for children who are in foster care. And so all of the children in that program were either removed from their biological parents because of abuse or neglect, whether it's physical or sexual abuse or various types of neglect, whether they're malnutrition, whether they um, educational neglect. And so the, the community volunteers would come in and basically be the eyes and ears for the court to let the court know how these children were being taken care of while in foster care. And so while that wasn't directly on point with criminal justice, I quickly learned, uh, because I was assigned a family group of three teenagers, I quickly learned that having contact with the foster care system, you're almost certain to have contact with the criminal justice system, just because those children have, um, they're in out-of-home placements, they're under, you know, everyone is watching them, whether it's school administration, whether it's the child protective services, whether it's law enforcement, those children receive more attention from the system per se than just a regular child. And so when I was work, so as I was volunteering for them, I was then offered a job with them. And I, I accepted the position and I accepted the position to do a specialized project but with people going on maternity leave and the, and the organization being down on staff, I was afforded the opportunity to come on full time. And so I really was able to craft my child advocacy from a criminal justice perspective as mm-hmm. I was given the, the bulk of my children on my caseload were teenagers. And a lot of them were in the process or were soon thereafter going to have contact with the criminal justice system. And so while we were advocating specifically in family court, I had some kids who had dual dockets in juvenile criminal court. And um, it was really fascinating and disheartening at the same time to see how those particular kids, simply because of their out of home situation that was completely out of their control being in foster care, they were subject Mm -hmm. to having contact with the criminal justice system. So while I was finishing my master's, I started writing on the topic just for myself and like doing research to see what the correlation was with children in foster care versus children who are not, who have um, contact with the criminal justice system at the same time. So while I was doing all of that, I was afforded the opportunity to become an adjunct professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. And through that position, I've been able to teach three different courses all within the realm of criminal justice.
0: So what do you teach on?
1: So I teach policy and practice, which basically I require my students to look at different responses to crime. So for example, one response to crime that I think the general general public is very aware of would be uh, Scared Straight. And I know it's like a TV show, but the original establishment of Scared Straight was a program in Rahway, New Jersey, where they would take children who were misbehaving or classified as delinquent adolescents and they would take them to Rahway Penitentiary to basically scare them into acting better, to not misbehaving. So those children would have access to the prison for a day. They would get locked in a cell. They would meet with the inmates there, get roughed up, um, hmm. have one-on-one conversations with the inmates who were there. Some of those conversations were a little More on the aggressive side, in my opinion, some of the conversations would be, hey, this is what I did when I was a teenager that led me to being a criminal as an adult, and now I'm serving a life sentence. So there are good and bads to the Scared Straight program. So my students will look at that program from the outside in, look at the business structure, look at the policy that is based on of how the program works, its goals, its targeted communities, And then throughout the semester, we look at about 14 different programs or policies or laws, and then at the end of the semester, they will write a paper explaining to me what the goal of that program or policy is, how it could potentially be improved, what are the flaws and fallbacks of the organization or the program, and that's that class. Then the other class that I teach is a corrections class, and we go into the historical development of the American prison system, its purpose, why is it here? Is it necessary? And we look at the state systems versus the federal systems because it's two totally different um, systems. And we will justify what types of crime actually require punishment of prison. And maybe and ask the question whether or not society is wasting money on sending so many people to prison. So mm-hmm. that, that class is very interesting because I have um, partnered up with some currently incarcerated people who write letters to my students and then my students will write them back and they get to see the perspective of not only me, the academic or the textbooks, but also the perspective from people who are currently facing and doing time in prison, both at the federal level and at um, the state level representative of, across a few different states. So it's a very interactive class. Go
0: ahead. Okay. I was going to ask you, so for someone who may not be as aware of what's going on and the difference between, okay, this is a state law versus a federal law can you explain a little bit more about that? Because I know sometimes we just see these things thrown out, like they were charged with with X, Y, Z. And in our minds, we feel like, okay, that's not a huge um, deal. Like why are they going to jail for 10, 15 years over having a small amount of marijuana or, you know, something like that. We just don't understand how, the criminal justice system is set up and all the different laws and the policies and the procedures. So can you give us a little bit more insight on that?
1: Sure. So the way that the state versus the federal system works. So in the United States, we have this thing that's called federalism, which allows the states to create their own laws and decide how they're going to apply those laws. So okay. for example, in California in Colorado, uh, marijuana is legal Of course there there are policies in place that allow it to be legal. there are rules and regulations as to the manufacture the distribution, the possession of it blah 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 however, while it's legal in Colorado, as soon as you cross state lines, you have now entered into other states that do not support it the, do not support the legalization so. Mm-hmm. Colorado and the federal system are at odds with each other because marijuana across the federal system is illegal. And so it's really interesting how Colorado and the federal system will play against each other in that realm. So taking it out of a state where it is not legal, what determines whether or not you're going to have a federal case or you're going to have a state case. There are a lot of different variables that go into that. Um, if you're moving like cartel type of drugs, chances are the federal government are going to come after you rather than a state simply because the federal government has the resources to investigate your case to the point of you would be stupid to not plea down. Okay. Okay. So what that basically means is like these states will charge you for one thing. And let's say, for example, I have committed a crime at the age of 20 where I robbed someone, but I didn't have a weapon. Okay, so I have a robbery. Um, They can decide whether or not they want to make that a felony or a misdemeanor. So I did that at 20. Then I commit another crime at 25. This time um, I stole, I carjacked someone, but I had a gun, so I used a weapon. I already had, let's say that that first robbery is a felony. So now, because I have a felony at 20, now at 25 on my subsequent crime, I'm a felon in possession of a firearm. That's an enhancement. That in and of itself, the feds can decide to take that case if they want to. Because it's an enhancement. It's this person who has already been charged with a felony is now committing more crimes and quote unquote is more dangerous because now I'm using a weapon. Um, I'm not sure if that really distinguishes between the two. It's, it's really up to the, the federal systems practice within a state to know what usually will go fed or not. Um, usually like people who have an extensive criminal record and, Extensive is ambiguous. What I think is extensive, someone else may not think is extensive. What I think is a petty crime, Mm -hmm. someone else may not think is a petty crime. But the federal government usually will go after people who have an extensive criminal record. And so there's a thing within the world of sociology and criminal justice that's known as a career criminal. And if by like 30, your criminal record is just outrageous and you're still committing crimes, but the punishment at the state level would be, in their perspective, a slap on the wrist, they may send your case to the feds. Because if you go fed, chances are your your sentence and your punishment is going to be five times higher than what you would have received at the state level.
0: I got you. I think you gave some really good examples. And I, it plays into one of the other themes of our conversation today that I wanted to have is that um, I wanted to know if the disproportionate amount of Black males in the criminal justice system is correlated with this lack of knowledge and understanding around how the criminal justice system works?
1: I I want to say yes. And I I want to say yes, because when you think about white-collar crime and who those individuals are, usually the people who are flying high doing white-collar crime, like your mobsters, like the think people like that, they, they are of a certain type of class of people. Right. And mm-hmm. so they usually know a thing or two about how to commit a crime and how to do it well with that, with, with avoiding detection. So, okay. um, since this summer I worked for the, I worked for the federal government, um, with the federal prosecutor, sorry, with the federal defender in Dallas and then now I'm currently working with the DA's office here in Baton Rouge and it's been rather eye opening just to see how at the federal level how people are being prosecuted and now at the state's level in Louisiana how people are being prosecuted and I think I think that the 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 goal of of committing crimes that are not white collar so just like your Typical drug dealer, whatever that may or may not look like, or your typical shoplifter. It, to me, I, I think that, that the goal of committing some of those crimes are the result of maintenance. Let's maintain my lifestyle, or mm-hmm. I have bills to pay, I have mouths to feed, I have, I have responsibilities. And while I could work a nine to five, I make more money doing this. Let's just go with that for an example. And um, it's really, I find it really interesting that the disproportionality is a result of many variables. Um, I, I may get some clap back in saying this. However, I, I firmly believe that law enforcement is very targeted and very purposeful. And there is a doctrine of target targeted policing and it's very effective. Um, and so I think that a lot of the, the communities that are quote unquote being targeted or hotspot policing are able to capture individuals who look like you and I, who are committing crimes that are for maintenance or for the purpose of maintaining a life, not trying to live a glory life, but living a life nonetheless. And so whenever you factor the law enforcement aspect, and then you factor in the ignorance mm-hmm. of individuals who commit crimes, I, it's unavoidable to have the disproportionate rate. And then when you think about the history in America of the black man and just white people in society, it only makes sense that we're getting to that kind of number. Um, targeted policing focus on urban areas. Urban areas are predominantly filled with minorities, not just white people, but minorities of the sort. And yeah. if that's where we're focusing our attentions, then it only makes sense that we're going to continuously have a disproportionate number. Then when you talk about the the court set, how does the court system work in reference to this disproportionate number of black men? I will say that the vast majority of defendants that have appeared before me in my court here are black. I had a tally running of how many non-Black defendants appeared before me, and I've been working with the DA's office since August, it's now October. I want to say I had less than 12 people who were not Black, so that means the vast majority were all Black. The court system, from the time that you are arrested and booked until the point that you are convicted and sentenced, is a big question mark. Me. Someone who has studied criminal justice since high school. I have two degrees in criminal justice. I have, and I'm almost done with a a juris doctorate. I still find the court set, the process from arrest to conviction to be the most confusing thing in the world. And for a lay person to come into that process without support, without guidance, without an attorney, I, it, it only makes sense that there's a disproportionate rate of individuals either pleading out to crimes that had that been tried in court, the state never would have met their burden to prove it, which means that the, the case itself would have been dismissed mm-hmm. or they're just um, just completely clueless. Like they have no support. And I know that a lot of people view the public defender or the state defender system as a joke. Um, I will gladly like to put on the record that public defenders are some of the best attorneys out there because they are given zero resources for the most part. And they have to basically make a Thanksgiving feast out of ramen noodles and baloney, And they oftentimes are able to do that. And so it's it's just the system is overwhelmed with the number of alleged defendants that appear. And processing them through is even more overwhelming and impossible. And oftentimes, people are lost in the system. People don't get transported from jail to go to their arraignment. When you're not transported, usually that's the fault of some law enforcement officer. But of Mm -hmm. course, the law enforcement officer is not going to take the blame for that. They're going to say, hey, Johnson, I called you out this morning. Were you not awake? Did you not get up? that fault will fall back on the individual rather than falling back on the guardian of that individual. And so now that's a Nick against Johnson. And it's just, it's, there's just so many, it's a big snowball effect. Yeah. And it's, it's really difficult to explain to someone what this process is going to look like. And just coming to court, there's big words that are thrown around There's dates, there's times, you have no idea what that means. Next thing you know, you're pleading guilty to something that you have no idea. You don't even know what the charge is against you. And oftentimes it comes down to, if I plead today to this crime and you're gonna give me um, two years on paper versus six months locked up, I'll take the two years on paper and take this felony charge, versus going to serve six months. And it's really interesting that I've seen two non-minorities say, you know what, I don't want to take the felony conviction, give me the six months, basically I can put my life on hold for six months and serve out this time, and take the misdemeanor charge. But hardly ever do you see a minority ever agreeing to something like that, primarily because. We have responsibilities and no one wants to sit in jail for six months. So how, um,
0: go ahead. One of my questions is, is, does no one really explain to them the difference or is it just put out there? They don't have anyone that says, okay, let me break this down to you. If you spend six months in here, you don't have a felony, but once you agree to this, you're going to have a felony, and that's going to really affect how you're going to be able to make a living in the outside world. You know, that doesn't happen. I would
1: would say that it does happen. Um, But being in the criminal justice system as a whole is very stressful. And what that conversation means to you right then and there is like, hey, you can go home now and be with your family who need you, or you can be in jail for the next six months. It's up to you, and I think that if if I personally had ma- like if I were to be arrested today right now, my livelihood would fall apart.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and while my mom is not totally dependent on me, she's dependent on me in a large capacity. So if I was to get incarcerated right now, and and given the option to have two years on probation versus serving a six month sentence, I would be forced. To be on papers aka pro- or probation for six months or sorry for two years rather than flattening that time and getting the misdemeanor charge with the six months in and so for, for a lot of the people that come in contact with the criminal justice system they don't have that option it's just it's a no-brainer it's like no let me out i'll plead if that's what it's going to be i'll plead but those two years on 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 probation it's almost a setup because oftentimes it's not just probation. You have all of these additional conditions. You have to go to um this class or that class, you have to go to AA or you have to go to drug treatment. And then all of those different programs and conditions and requirements come at the expense of the individual. So okay, I take my two years on probation, and then I have to go to AA once a week, I have to go to anger management once a week. I have to go and do 100 hours of community service before the end of the year. It's October the 5th or 6th, whatever today's date is. I have to do 100 hours of community service, and then let's say I have to do drug treatment. Okay, most services are provided either during the day or in the afternoon. If I'm working, that means during the day I'm at work. If I have mouths to feed, AKA children, I'm going to get my kids after work. I don't have time to go to AA, drug treatment, anger management. And each, you know, as each day goes by and I'm not completing those services and I have to go check in with my probation officer, they're like, hey, you're not doing these services. Hey, you haven't paid for drug treatment. Hey, you've done zero community service hours. And I'm like, yes, I understand. But I also have to help my kids with homework. I also have to take my mom to the grocery store. I have to live. And so those conditions are very much unrealistic. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling trap. So you get to one year and six months into your two years of probation. Now your parole or your probation officer decides to violate you because you still haven't completed those services. You've made an effort, but you haven't completed it. Guess what? A violation is results in me going to jail. Mm. So I, I still end up serving jail time for something. Yeah. And that that for me is what I see most often than not.
0: Mm. It's very interesting because if you've never really been around the criminal justice system, a lot of times you just have to go based off of what you see on TV or the news stories, or maybe the few people that have gone in and out of jail. And we just have like no understanding whatsoever on how this thing works. And we know that we're targeted a lot, you know, we know we get pulled over more than anyone else. We know that we get shot by police. We know all of these things. And I think there's this hopelessness that we have sometimes in the community in both the black and the brown community that we really just don't know how do we make it change. Like what do we do to to stop the the police brutality? What do we do differently? And we protest and, you know, we say we need to go vote. There's a lot of things that we feel like we can do to make an actual change. But I want to know, in your opinion, do those things really bring about change? Like, are the protests really bringing about change? Or is it just making sure we have the right people in the rooms to advocate for us? Is that a more the direction we need to go into instead of the direction we're going in now, every single time something happens.
1: Well, I think that there are power in numbers. And I say that from each one of those perspectives, the power to protest, the, the right, the constitutional right that you have to protest is one that I think while it has been used lately in our culture, it's become a thing that we do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it should be um, something that is done with purpose and not just reactionary. Okay. Um, and I know, I, I think that the concept of protest is in itself reactionary, but there could be protests that are done before someone has to take a bullet, before um, Johnny is gunned down by the police before someone is given an outrageous sentence that is not the same sentence that his white counterpart would have received in that same situation. I, I also think that there's power in numbers as it relates to voting. Um, you know, seeing what happened in Selma years ago, and what happened in Selma two years ago, is very telling in and of itself. And I know I know a host of people who have never voted for anything, not for a president, not for the local election, not for state representatives, not for anything. But they are the first to complain when something doesn't go right. Yes. Or they are the first to complain when little Johnny has been gone gunned down by the police. And so while while there are outcomes, positive outcomes in numbers, if those numbers are not taking advantage of the rights that they have been given, whether it is to protest, whether it is to vote, whether it is to convene as a community and just have open table discussions about what they like or don't like in their communities. If those numbers of bodies are not coming together in some capacity, nothing will ever result. And I think for me, um, having come having lived the majority of my life in Lewisburg and having lived in New York, having worked in New York, been in Jersey, lived in Jersey, I find, and even in Dallas, I find that when numbers of people congregate to either discuss, to protest, to educate, you get different outcomes than than you would get if you're just sitting silently and waiting Mm -hmm. and waiting for the opportunity to complain rather than the opportunity to act. And so I think it's very important that communities protest. I think it's very important that we let our elected officials at the local level know how we feel, what our issues are, what our concerns are, and hold them accountable. And whether that accountability comes through the shape of a protest, or whether it comes in a paradigm shift in voting, then something something can and should be done but it won't occur without the action of those numbers and so for me oftentimes i look back at lewisburg and i see what's going on and i'm just like what are why are all of you people like what are you doing why aren't you talking about these things why Why is it okay? Why are these different issues just flying under the table and no one really seems to be taking action? And I hate to put Lewisburg on blast, but that's where I live the majority of my life. And I I have Lewisburg is very important to me. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes I will reach out to some of my classmates or the powers that be in the town. And I begin to question them like, what is going on? I know that no one has really brought this to your attention, because maybe they don't realize that it's a problem, but I don't live there. I see it as a problem. I'm calling it out. What can we do to fix this? Who do I need to talk to? And because I'm not there, there's, there's not much that I can do on the ground. So I will ask different people, hey, can you kind of follow up and see what's going on with this? No action. And that's, you know, 10 years down the road, I'm still asking certain people to respond to different things. And it's just, it's just not happening. So whether there's a lack of leadership, where there's a lack of interest to act, I'm not sure. But whenever whenever the motivation finds itself and you have a number of people ready and willing to do something about it, change can definitely happen.
0: I know yesterday the verdict came back for the Chicago police officer, um Jason Van yes. Dyke who was found guilty of murdering Laquan McDonald. And that's a huge win in the eyes of the culture because we just don't see that many convictions of police officers who we feel have murdered our Black boys. And so what do you think was different about this case? Why were we able to get a guilty in this case and not get a guilty in, you know, Trayvon Martin's case or some of the other cases that have happened. Is there something in particular that was different? Was it the, um, the protest or the the people advocating for this or, I mean, just to play devil's advocate with Chicago, like, you know what? We don't want a race riot. We don't want to deal with a lot of backlash. We know what that looks like in all these different places. So this guy is going to be the one that we're going to find guilty so we can keep the peace.
1: I honestly think that it's a combination of all of that. Um, I haven't followed that case as closely because law school controls my life. Uh But I will say that Chicago is a different animal in and of itself. I had the privilege of, of living there for six weeks this summer and um, it's really interesting how their police law enforcement community relations are. Um, I know that while I was there this summer it was every single day someone is dying a police mm-hmm. has disarmed his firearm yeah has disarmed his firearm or someone has been shot not really sure if it was from the police's firearm or from Another suspect who was shooting. But I think that just considering the political climate in Chicago um, over the last couple of years and the number of police involved shootings that have occurred in Chicago, I, I honestly want to say that it was enough is enough we are going to have to make an example out of someone in an effort to stop the madness. And um, I I honestly think, you know, police officers are human Mm -hmm. and um, not to flip your question, but I do want to address the victory that it may or may not be. I think that it is a victory for the victims, like the family members who who have received justice for their lost loved one. But I'm not sure if this victory is a victory that we should really rally about simply because it has more or less raised the standard of what it takes to convict a police officer.
0: Uh
1: Um, And from the perspective of a, a from a legal perspective, the Supreme court has handed down all types of all types of decisions through the years that make it almost impossible to prosecute a police officer. Police officers have immunity as long as they're doing, they're acting within the course and scope of their, their job and they have um, justified means to fire their firearm, whether it's for their own individual safety, whether it's to secure the safety of, of those around them or maybe the suspect's is a threat to him or herself. All of those different elements allow a police officer to use their firearm. However, I think that this particular situation with officer Van Dyke really raises the bar of what it's going to take to prosecute a police officer going forward. And I'm not sure that as as someone who plans to have children, hopefully little boys, mm-hmm. uh, who will likely be Brown, I'm not sure that I want the facts of the case to be so clear and so blatant and so unjust that it's that type of fact pattern that will require a court to convict a police officer and say, yeah, he probably acted outside of what is justified of a police officer. And for me that is not a win Mm -hmm. for the black and brown community, because I can think of countless individuals who have been gunned down by police. And in my opinion, as, as a student of the law, I think the facts are very clear that they stepped outside of their realm of what is justified and what is not. However, reasonable people can differ in their analysis of that, but I just don't think that it is a victory that, Facts such as that case is what we are now going to require to convict a police officer. And, and so to, to translate that into something that's a little bit more understandable, if you have on a red shirt, I say that it's red. You say that it's coral. Well, coral could fall within the red family, it could also fall within the orange family. But someone else looking at that shirt will say the decision maker will say, actually, it's red. It's not coral. And so for, for what that means from a legal perspective is different people can view that situation differently. But if we're going to set the standard and say that your shirt is red, when really it's coral, that means that the fact of your shirt actually being coral doesn't matter. Does that
0: make sense? It does. It does.
1: Right. And so I'm not sure that we want to raise the standard in in that world as it relates to really providing justice where justice is served is, is every single case going forward going to require that the officer's body camera is on, that the conversation between the decedent and the officer is being actively recorded and that the officer just started firing without cause and therefore has stepped outside of the realm. That's clear-cut. Yes, that's ju- that is unjustified. That is outside the course and scope of that officer's duties. But if we have another case that comes through that says maybe his body cam wasn't on, but his dash cam in the car was on, and we could see them having a conversation, though we couldn't hear them, let's say that the decedent raised his hand to scratch his head because he was being asked a question. Scratching your head is a natural reaction. And then the officer pulls his gun. Hmm. We couldn't hear that, but are we going to say, well, since his body cam wasn't on, there's not enough evidence to prove that he did this. And the last case that we were able to prove or that we were able to convict, the officer said that the body cam was on. But this time the body cam wasn't on. And so I don't know, again, going back to the Van Dyke case, if we want this to be classified as a win for the black community or for the community of individuals who are on the receiving
0: end of, of gun Firing officers. That's a really good point. I I didn't look at it that way. And I'm glad you broke that down to us because we can get in this uh, collective sense of we won. We did. We were finally able to get a conviction. I've seen it all on social media. It's on Facebook. It's on Instagram. It's a win. It's a win. It's a win. But we've got to start taking a deeper look into, okay, what does this win really mean? Um, what are going to be the repercussions of this win. And so in our eyes, if that's how we're going to classify it. So as we wrap up, I want to know from you and in, from your perspective, what are some of the things that we can do as minorities to be more aware of the pitfalls that we can fall into so we don't do that? And what can we do to make sure that we are Bringing awareness out in our communities, the uh, importance of voting and the importance of uh, community and the importance of actionable steps and and things that we can do to be more aware when it comes to police and how they interact with us, because I think it's no longer about, okay, you get pulled over, you put your hand on the steering wheel. That's not going to cut it anymore. Do we need to be having more conversations with police officers? Just in your thoughts, what do you think we can be doing to better our own situations when it comes to the criminal justice system?
1: So, I think that within the school set, um, starting early, I think it's very important for children to understand the role of law enforcement. I don't think that I was actually afraid of the police until I was a teenager. Me too. And um, I always thought that, you know, on the side of their police car that says to serve and protect. I honestly thought that if I was in danger, I could call the police and they would come. Until I found myself in New Jersey. um, I don't want to go into details of the situation. But when we called the police, because we lived in a certain area, they did not come. And I honestly felt like I was left for dead by the police, Mm -hmm. which is fine. I'm here. I'm alive. It is what it is. But I definitely think that in the school set, children need to understand what the role of police are. And I think they need to understand what the role of police are from both the positive and the negative. And when I say the negative, I mean, from the perspective of, of combating crime and what that looks like. And I feel that Um, A lot of parents attempt to shield their children from the reality of life. Mm -hmm. And while that that is their own parenting style and choice, I think that is a wrong approach. Um, Someone may jump out of their shoes to hear me say that since I do not have children. However, um, I definitely think that starting in school, at whatever age the school district thinks is appropriate, I think there needs to be an intimate conversation with law enforcement officers and black and brown children, and also just all children as a whole. How those conversations need to go down, in my opinion, it needs to be a segregated conversation. I think that the black and brown students should speak to law enforcement officers in their own set. And I think that non-minority students should speak to police officers in their own set. And then after they've had their own open discussion should all of the students come together and have some type of cultural awareness and understanding of what law enforcement looked like to the different demographics of students? Then from there, I think that each community should have some type of forum where they can have open discussions on law enforcement. Each law enforcement office has a mission. Each law enforcement entity has a goal. What is their goal? Do they have, are they working on a quota system? Are also I think it's very important for the community members to know how their law enforcement agencies are being funded, because a lot of law a t- the vast majority of law enforcement organizations are funded, of course, by the federal government, by the state government, but also every drug transaction that they're able to stop. And if there's money seized, those dollars are then reapportioned to the law enforcement office. Really? And if that's not an incentive, yes, girl, if that is not an incentive to go and bust every drug dealer's door down, I don't know what is. If I was a law enforcement officer, especially with the knowledge that I have of the streets, oh, yes, my law enforcement office would have all the money, right? So... I think that that is something that communities need to know. And I also think that there should be an ongoing dialogue of what are our police force doing to be trained? Are they completing so many hours of cultural competency? What does my police force and and law enforcement agencies locally look like? Do they look like me? Do they look like you? Um, Do they represent the um, Maldonado family down the street? Are they representative of the Chang family down the street? Like I need to know what that looks like. And I think that community leaders should be asking those questions on the forefront. Now on an individual level, I think that individually people in communities should have conversations amongst themselves. I think that the clergy, that the church, the synagogue, the mosque, the what have you, religious leaders, should actively have some type of seminar to educate their community constituents. Um, Whether that means bringing in attorneys to talk to them about what do you do during a police stop? Having law enforcement officers, what do you do during a police stop? Having elected officials come and talk about what are their goals, agenda and platforms for their elected cycle? How can we as a community members hold them accountable for what they're doing and for what they're not doing? And also I think that is very important for community members on an individual level to know the processes that they should go through in order to file a grievance. If your police officers are acting out of hand, how do you handle that? Is it an internal investigation? Personally, I'm probably not gonna snitch on my co-colleague, right? So does an internal system really work? Should someone question the internal process of a grievance? Um, And so I think that those, there are so many things that could and should be done to really know how the whole entire criminal justice system works. And the basis of the answer is that it starts with education. You have to know. And if you're not putting yourself in places to know and you're, or if, if the environments to know are not available to you, what are you doing to bring those environments to your community so that you and everyone else can know what should and should not be done, what the policies are, what the rules are, what happens when a rule or policy is violated, what are the consequences to individuals? And, um, I think that from an actionable perspective, um, aside from voting, okay, you can vote. Yeah, sure. Anyone can go vote, exercise their right to vote. But before you vote, you need to know what you're voting for. What do these individuals represent? What are their platforms? What are their agendas? What are they going to do and take to the legislature to change laws and amend laws and update laws that will not only make your life better, but make your community better? Are they really going to represent the community that they are being voted from? If not, what are we doing to put other candidates in the position to run for these positions? If, if the candidate selection are not representative of your community, then what are we doing to support other potential people who could serve in those capacities? And there's one other thing that I really think is important. Um, As far as the judicial system is concerned, judges have a lot of power and I have been fortunate enough to live in Louisiana for almost three years now. And while Louisiana is probably one of the most corrupt and backward states I've ever lived in. I will say that back in the eighties, a group of black attorneys teamed together to say, you know what, we're going to change the paradigm of this, of this bench, basically the judges who are elected to serve. Louisiana has the most black judges of any other state in this nation. And to see black judges, come together in one room and talk about the power that they have. And through the years, how they have relied on banking the system to put black and brown people on the bench Mm -hmm. is probably the most undiscussed topic in, um, in the political arena, if you will, they created a system and the, early 90s that would put black and brown faces across this state into the position of judge. And they have executed that in a way that was legal, in a way that was ethical, in a way that was professional. And I think that it's very important, especially in the South, that communities are investing into their community members to put them in places of power and to hold them accountable. Like once we put you there, don't start showing out. Right. (laughs) We need you to stay there and, and, and be, yes. And do that. And I was looking the other day at the number of, of black judges in the state of Tennessee and with Tennessee being a, a, a very, Pivotal location as far as the civil rights is concerned and with the amount of HBCUs that once upon a time were in Tennessee and with the number of black and brown bodies that we have in that state, it is a shame that there are so few black judges across the whole entire state. And I think that maybe a part of that is my fault as someone who has since left Tennessee And I'm not sure if I will be coming back to practice as an attorney, but I think that of the black lawyers and attorneys and political powered people should take, take a look at what Louisiana has done and what black attorneys here in Louisiana have done to put black and Brown faces on the bench. And when you start to look at that and look at that power that they have it's, it's really something that can change things for the black and brown community. Mm-hmm. I also think while judges have a lot of power, the prosecutors have the most power. And so I think it's very important that we raise our kids up to want to get into law and want to pursue positions like the prosecutor's office and to be assistant district attorneys or to be state prosecutors, because at the end of the day, it's the prosecutor who determines who is going to be charged, how they are going to charge them, the sentence that they will receive and a judge, while they do have power and some discretion, the judge either has to take what the prosecution has given and recommended and apply the law. And so I I think that, prosecutorial conduct as a whole is a whole other topic that we should probably flesh out and really talk about because mm-hmm. I don't think that within the criminal justice system that people really understand the role of a prosecutor and how much power the prosecutor has within the life of anyone you could say that you're never going to kill someone You can say that you're never going to rape someone. But me as a prosecutor, I can say that you are you have both killed and raped someone. And now it's your
0: responsibility to prove me wrong. Mm.
1: And that that's a whole nother level of power.
0: That's a whole nother level. Yes. You have given us so much insight into the criminal justice system today. And I just want to thank you for coming on and having this chat with me. And I know after people hear this episode, there's going to be a ton of more questions and things of that nature going into the prosecution. We didn't even get to touch on Um, minority women in the criminal justice system. So there's so many different directions we can go into. And I hope to have you back on to do that. But I want to thank you for coming on today and dropping the many, many gems that you did.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's truly been an honor and a pleasure. And I hope I didn't ramble on too much.
0: No, you didn't. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Natalie. All right. Thank you. Miss Sisternomics Thanks for checking out this week's show Keep up with me, check me out on Facebook at Miss Sisternomics on Instagram at miss.systemomics and on the website where you can ask questions misssystemomics.com Until next time